Welcome, everyone, to Authors on the Air. My guest today is Rich Zaradnik. He has been a journalist and he's an author, and he has a new book out called The Bone Records. Let's see the book. There you go. Welcome to Authors on the Air. How are Thanks you? Thanks for having today? me. Uh, it's my pleasure to have you here. I, I want to start off by saying um, that I, I love the title of your book, but it made me wonder where did you ever find that topic? How is it that you came to use something, a bone record, as to space your book on? But also, what the heck is a bone record? Right, right. Okay, so um, I, this is my fifth book. And in my experience, and then uh, since I've become published, meeting other mystery writers, um, there's a lot of ways people get beginnings for books or, or the idea for books, I guess. Some people see an opening scene. Some people, uh, it's a what if. Uh, some people see the ending uh, that they want to get yes. to, you know, uh, or it's a high concept, uh, you know, trick or something like that. Um, and in the case of the Bone Records, um, I, I, I read an article about b Bone Records and they are real, so I, I should tell the audience what they are in case they're scratching their head um they it's on, one is on the cover um in the soviet union from the late 40s until the early 1960s the only way that Amer uh, soviet citizens could listen to banned american rock and roll was on bootleg singles made from used x-rays because they would take a groove and uh, these were called bones or bone records or rock on the ribs uh and i read this and i'm like this is so good this has got to be play a role in a book, a, a, a crime novel I want to write. How, now, explain to me how they would create a record from an x-ray. I, I don't and, understand it. So they um, they discovered that one side of x-rays at the time, which were that highly flammable nitrate film, was soft enough to take a groove. Now, they could not press records or albums like we're used to, if you've seen right. you know, films or video, where they're psh, 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 with right. the going in those machines were not available and you could never smuggle one in. So they came up with this method where they'd have two turntables. One would be playing the record, which had been smuggled in by a sailor or a diplomat or someone else because this music was banned. And the other would have um, an x-ray that they, they had cut in a circle. They often, the hole was often burned with a cigarette because you could tell it wasn't perfectly neat. They put that on the other turntable and the stylus on that turntable would cut the groove as it played, you know, the one turntable played and the turntable with the x-ray um, would cut the groove. And so since they were made from x-rays, everyone was different. You know, this one has a skull on it. Some might have hands. It's whatever. Oh, I see. Whatever that particular x-ray had on it. So they kind of, uh, they were one of a kind in terms of the way they looked. And they could have any range of songs from the blues or jazz, which was also banned to, like I said, early American rock and roll. How fascinating. Now, how long could they play these bone records? Well, that's a good question. Um, I mean, one thing about quality that I learned uh, in reading about them is, you know, uh, it was a off and on um, production system. So you could get one that has a, and there's a website, um, X-Ray Audio, where you can go listen listen to some that have been preserved and some lots of crackling and popping, some so much noise, you can't hear anything. And the Russians called that buying sand translated out of Russian. Um, uh, so, you know, the, 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 like I said, the quality, it, 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 it could be all over the place because it was this ad hoc manufacturing process. Do you know who any of the bands were that were banned? Uh, Ella Fitzgerald was banned. Uh, Chuck Berry was banned. Um, um, 
oh god i've listened to so many of them um uh was it mostly african-american artists or were there no 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 it been white rock and rollers also as i said it was 63 is is the key year because that's when real to real tapes were allowed in right. the Soviet Union, and that allowed e much easier bootlegging, and the bone records disappeared. So the Beatles are not on them, for example. Um, I chose in the novel. Um, I'm a huge Buddy Holly fan. I have no evidence that a bone record was cut of his music. Um, no, I have no evidence that one wasn't. Um, right. It's probably kind of unlikely because he was. Um, he was a, a, a star inside this country a bit and he really was more of a star after he died. But I love his music and he was doing that kind of music at the time these were being made. And he's got great titles for a crime uh, novel, Rave On, uh, 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 Don't Fade Away. So, um, uh, but it would, it would have been, you know, that, that range of artists from Elvis. Elvis was definitely one um, from, that, from that group of, uh, you know, those, that group of rock and rollers. That's fascinating to me. I have never heard of this until I started reading your book. Me, it neither is I. I, I. I meet few people that have heard. I, I meet occasionally people who've read about them, but very few people that have heard of them. There's a there's one. Let me put on my book. There's one nonfiction book written about them, which I read, um, and then I read all the articles I could find. Um, there's a very small museum to them in Britain, in London, that was uh, set up by a, an English rock and roller, a second tier rock and roller, who who wanted to kind of preserve their legacy oh yeah but what a magnificent thing it's such mm -hmm. a curious thing to be preserving but i mean that's something for the records obviously sure. now um let's talk a little bit about how you incorporated this interesting find of yours into a book sure. give us a little bit of let's take the elevator pitch and you can you know sure. take a couple minutes you're on the top floor take sure the no uh, well so you know i wanted to incorporate them and I, I the first uh writing decision i made was i had two choices i could either set it in the soviet union in the early 60s and i did not want to do that because it was way too much research and i'm a huge martin cruz smith fan and i couldn't even begin to get near him so the other way i, I realized i could do it is um, uh, 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 an area where a lot of Russian immig em immigrants had settled um, who would have grown up during that time would work. And that happens to be the Little Odessa neighborhoods in Brooklyn, Coney Island, Sheepshead Bay. Um, uh, and so I decided to set it there in the not relative present. It's set in 2016. Um, and what I want... The elevator pitch, I guess, is, you know, how do, how do I make these a part of the story? Um, Griggs, Grig, who's the, the, the protagonist, his father, a Russian immigrant, has been missing for six months in the first chapter, turns up to say goodbye because he says he's going, I'm going to Russia. And in the, I'm not really spoiling anything. He's he's murdered by a guy, uh, someone who breaks into the house in that first chapter. And Grig, before he has to escape the, the killer, um, finds a disc in his father's pocket being uh, 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 born here and everything. He doesn't even know what it is. Um, and you, we find out a couple chapters later that they're, they're a bone record. It is a bone record. Um, and then that sort of begins a tale of uh, figuring out what happened to his father, why his father ran, and then kind of a little bit later on in the book, but not really spoiling too much, another record shows up. Um, and this is clearly a, an indicator that you're marked for death. And um, Grig is trying to figure out why this is happening. What a fascinating topic. And to incorporate it into a book like that, it's, it's just amazing. I love it. Now, when I was reading up on you, um, mm -hmm. I, I found that you spent 27 years as a journalist in, in a lot of different places. I did. You did Hollywood Reporter and CNN and 
Bloomberg and all these yeah. other things. You have a good Did memory. You, it, it must have given you such a great way to start your writing career mm-hmm. because you have to be succinct with news or whatever yep. story you're telling, correct? Mm-hmm. So how did you make the jump from journalism to writing? And was there something in between there? No, I mean, I, I was I was writing before I quit journalism. Um, I, I was still working full time. In fact, the journey was a pretty long one. Um, and I would say that journalism, um, yes, y- you you learn to compress. You write a lot, you know, hundreds of thousands of sentences over a 27 year career. So with some amount of ego, I think I, I thought when I first made the jump that like, well, I know how to write. This is going to be easy. And the <laughs> Famous first, words. <laughs> the first manuscript I wrote, which was never published and no one will ever read. Um, you know, they say write what you know, but you have to be careful with that. I I was I was still being a journalist. I was I was sticking so closely to the facts that I was not doing a good job of telling a story that would I see the reader. And that was the lesson I had to learn. So the, my first published book, Last Words, was uh, the first of a four book series. And of course, the protagonist in that one was a journalist, as it was in the failed novel. But this time I was ready. I knew, OK, we're, I was going to use the bits and pieces that I knew about journalism that would ver- suck people in the story. But then when it was time to tell a, a good crime story that would keep people interested, I had to kind of move away from you know true reality. And the example I always give is, there are a lot of novels where journalists are protagonists. Journalists never catch bad guys in the real world. It just doesn't work that way. We go to the press conference where the cops tell us who they caught. But in novels, people want to see the protagonist engaged right up until the end of the third Absolutely. Hour. If you suck them in with the right details about the profession and everything, then they're happy to go along for the ride when it kind of veers off into um, you know, fiction or suspending disbelief. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and there are plenty of novels with journalism, journalists as their protagonist. Sure. And you're right. You have to make the story feasible for the reader to come on in. And, and obviously you have. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. What is the biggest mistake you made when you started writing? And what did you figure out after you made that mistake? Wow. I mean, I really... It, that that first manuscript, which I wrote when I was still with The Hollywood Reporter, I was the London bureau chief and I actually got an agent for it and eight very nice rejections and then realized it wasn't what it needed to be, was this idea of I was so busy. You know how when you're reading a book and there's like just too much description? Yes. Um, as Elmore Leonard says, cut out the. Right. Don't put the stuff in. people don't want to read. Right. <laughs> Paraphrasing. Right. Uh, I, I was doing a, a, a lot of that uh, over describing to bring you into the actual real world. Uh, and of course, I said it in the world of a paper like The Hollywood Reporter, the net, the, the one that worked. I decided, all right, you're going to, you know, even though I didn't work for a Metropolitan Daily ever, it's going to be a New York Daily because I know how they all work. And you're going to use what you know and not you know, try and do this 70,000 word nonfiction article about uh, journalism because that's journalism, not what right. Up for. Right. You're not teaching a class, in other words. No, no. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Dutch Leonard, too. And I know that he said that. I have tons of his books. I've listened to his interviews and everything. He's really a fascinating He's character. He's one of the best. But yes, I, w- one thing is I'm not a writer. I, I, you know, I say that quite honestly. Getting an email out without everything misspelled is a big challenge for me. But I am a big reader. I read about 400 books a year across genres. So the books that the one thing that will turn me off is if someone's trying to if they over explain, it's like you have to 
readers are, are uh, I think, educated people if, if mm. they read. And so you have to assume that they're smart enough to understand what you're saying without over saying it. And the same way is if I see, you know, thought bubbles or something mm -hmm. like that, it's like, don't do that. Yep. Trust me to understand it or not. I'm either going to mm -hmm. like it or I'm not. So I, I think that was a very good lesson for you to learn because totally. it's absolutely true. Totally. Um, who are your favorite writers? I, you've mentioned Dutch Leonard and all. Who else? Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, my, 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 I hate to number the list, but um, back in the, in the nineties, when I was um, working with someone, a coach uh, on writing, um, she handed me uh, Michael Connolly's first book and she thought it would, it would ring true because he was an ex-journalist. Right. Um, right. And, on the police course, beat. Um, and he, he was an ex-journalist. So I read him and I loved him. And what, what I love about Connolly is, I mean, there are, there are people like Leonard or Lehane. Right. Right, right. Who, have, who have these great voices. And I'm not saying Connolly doesn't have a great voice. Connolly has a great voice, but he has this amazingly sneaky voice. It's not overly elaborated. It you're is not. Reading, you might almost think you're reading journalism, and then he's gotcha. Right. And then suddenly, you know, either a scene, just, it's not not even the it's big action scenes. Right. It'll, be that, scene, it'll be that scene where Harry just snaps off this wisecrack at a chief or someone else that right. he just built up to, the, and then, then it's boom. Without, and I, I'm not saying those those are they're, they're not over having a great authorial voice is awesome. Mike Connolly's is really sneaky, so he's he's way way up there um, uh, for me. Um, this is I, a lot of people aren't reading him now, but before I became a writer, I was reading Tony Hillerman. I'm a huge. Tony oh my Hillerman. God! I'm friends with Anne. His books are special. I love I love him, and yes. he taught me um, because you can do description and scenery yes and you can make it another character in the it novel. is absolutely well, i was going to say that's another character in the book it's so and pivotal so, yeah. you couldn't set it in another place no when and, you're reading Hillerman. correct and so even though they're completely different places new york city in the 1970s which is where the four books of my first series was set the coldridge teller mysteries i wanted to and tried to do the same thing um, to make New York City in the 70s another character uh, right. in the book. And I would say, you know, about what you were saying about, you know, writing too much or whatever. I, I you know, I, I do not believe in art for art's sake. This is a brick until someone reads it. When I'm right. writing this, right. it's a brick. And so right. as a writer, I'm always thinking, what are the, honestly, what are the right. fewest words I can use to describe someone's face that will right. put a face, that'll put a face in your head. It may be a face that's different from another reader, but you get it and you get right. to move on and you're in the scene. That, that's I, the I love that I you're think. mentioning that. Excuse me for interrupting you, because I have to mention Robert Crace, who says that he never describes uh, um, Elvis Cole and Joe Pike simply because he wants the reader to imagine what they look like. Sure. And it drives me crazy because every time I see him or I interview him, I always say, oh, come on, give me a hint. What do you think they look like? He will not say a word, which is why he won't sell any of his books for, mm -hmm. for film or anything. Mm -hmm. He says, I I want pristine characters that the readers are intimate with. And it's yep. absolutely happened. It's true. Yep. So various, that's really good. I like that. I like to, um, I like some description uh, in Precedent Child, their, um, their main character, Prendergast, has has been described and painted and everything mm -hmm. else. I still don't know what he looks like, even though I've seen all the artwork that's submitted fan artwork and everything uh -huh. else. 
Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, so, I, don't, I don't think I, there's, I believe in that. I think it, it, the, the POV character, cause I hate the look in the mirror um, trick. And if right. with a, even a third person POV character, you can't leave their head to have someone else look at him exactly. and describe him. So there right. was very little description of either right. of my two published protagonists. Oh, good for and you. That make, like you said, that makes the hero, the reader's hero. They yes. make up the hero, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's part exactly. of imagination, which is what fiction is supposed to trigger. It, it, it absolutely is. I mean, if I want to put Sam Elliott as your hero, I'm putting him in your... <laughs> that works. What's next for you, Rich? Um, so I've started a new novel uh, called Ghost Paper. Um, uh, <laughs> as, uh, as, as I'm sure you know, there's a crisis in local journalism. Local uh, 2,500 local newspapers have closed since 2004. Yes. So I wanted to do a novel about that, but doing a novel about that would be, you know, you can't. That so I'm doing a novel about one newspaper that's dying, and in fact, it's being murdered by the financial people that own it, and one reporter who works there, who is both trying to do the obituary of his paper, which is dying, but of course, people don't want to read a novel about just a dying newspaper, so. By chapter two, a local mayor is murdered and my guy, you know, he covers local government. So um, like the bone records are kind of an undercurrent in this story, you know, um, I don't, you know, they, I'm not going on and on and on about them. This theme of the death of newspapers is the undercurrent that I'm laying on top of uh, a murder story somewhere in the Hudson Valley um, in a medium sized city where the paper is going under like happens all, all too often. It so does. I will have to be careful not to, again, lecture because uh, it's a subject I care a great deal about right. while making it a, a part of the story, but but really bringing people into a murder mystery they want to read about. Uh, people tell me they don't like to read ebooks. They would rather have print in their hand. And sure. I would rather read a newspaper than an online story. Yeah. I don't know what it is about newspaper. Now, I, I grew up in Miami, so I read the Miami Herald. You know, sure. my fingers were black with the ink from it afterward. But there was something uh, visceral and, and tangible about reading that newspaper print. Yeah. You know, the printed newspaper and all the stories in it. Yeah. And it was so fascinating to me as a, I started reading very, very young. I mean, I read the classifieds because I like to read so much. <laughs> so I read all the ads, had no idea what they were, but I think it's, it's a shame that, uh, I mean, I understand people saying, well, paper, you know, and it's a waste and all that. The fact of the matter is though, there's nothing like reading columns by your favorite journalist, yeah. whether they're investigative or it's, you know, in the, for health or whatever it is. So I understand the death of the newspaper. Is it really, it's, it's an American shame. It's an American crime. Yeah. Know? And there so, are a lot of online thing, you know, local news things popping up. Right. Um, but not as many, there's about 400 of them, not as many replacing the ones that are going under. Right. And like you, I love, you know, we get two papers delivered and, and that's not because I think I'm saving papers. It's because I know sometime in my future, I won't be able to get them. But I, I, and maybe this wouldn't be something for civilians, but I want to see the front page of The New York Times just to see what they decided were the six or seven most important stories that day. Exactly. And, it's and interesting. I don't think people understand that unless they've had Now I took journalism in, in, sure. in school. And so I don't think people understand how stories are laid out when they're sure. blocked out on the page and everything. That placement is very important, whether it's above the fold, below the fold, yep. how many column inches you're getting yep. and so forth. So I absolutely agree with you. I like to know what the headline is. 
I don't want to go someplace and look at the breaking news necessarily because right. that's like repetitious, even for newspapers and television. Right. When you're digital, it's all repeti repetition. Tell me once, I'll wait till tomorrow to get the next batch of it, right? Right. And for yeah. as high tech as, as, as it is, um, uh, whether it's if it's on your computer screen or particularly if it's on your phone, where about 70% of people are reading these things, the layout is completely vertical. So there's no, there is no, you know, what what did the editors decide at seven o'clock last night? Exactly. The, Before the they should have the Herald or the Times or the right. Wall Street Journal or whatever. Right, right. Um, and uh, it's funny, though it's the lower tech medium, even if you have a huge screen, the New York Times front page fully opened. You can see more of what was news yesterday than you can looking at the screen because you got to exactly. And click through and all that. I agree with but you. I, you know, I read a lot online. I know the future is what it's going to be, but there's reasons newspapers are going under aside from the fact that Facebook and Google are taking all the ad money and everyone's reading it on Facebook. Bad people, hedge funds are buying papers up and stripping exactly. parts. And it could have gone on longer or there could have been a different strategy. And so it's 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 that's part of what's going to be in the book. You know, it's interesting to me, too, that it isn't so much the laying off the reporters and the staff. They have giant buildings yeah. that those things are worth more than the sum of its parts. That's sure. the, the real estate now has become so valuable. Right. So I have a feeling that's a large part of it, too. Oh, totally. totally. Um, Rich, tell everybody, show, let's show the book again, The Bone oh, Records. Sure. And where can we find you, your website, first of all? Okay, so uh, my name's on the screen, thankfully, because who remembers Zaradnik? I am at www.richzaradnik.com. And, and, and I urge you to go there, folks, because Rich has a very rich, interesting backstory for himself. And plus, you'll get to see all his books. Mm -hmm. Rich, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I've learned so much today. I feel enlightened today. Uh, this is a great interview. <laughs> Thank you, Pam, for having me. I really it's absolutely my pleasure. Um, I, I hope you have a great day. Uh, audience, thank you for being with me. And thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see you next time. Don't go away, Rich. <laughs>